Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. The man we'll be talking about in this episode has a main belt asteroid named after him, 7057 Al-Farabi, which orbits the sun. Why? Well, <laughs> why not? Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarki. And I'm Holly Fry. So we are talking about Al-Farabi, but our actual story is really bigger than just one man. We're talking about alchemy in the early Islamic world. And the very first thing that we need to address is what the expression Arabic alchemy means, because we're going to say it a lot. It might not mean what you think it does. It's pretty simple, actually. Arabic alchemy refers to works about alchemy that were written in the Arabic language. It does not take into consideration things like ethnicity or heritage. And among those who are considered Arabic alchemists are scholars of many different ethnic origins who all just happen to be speaking the same language. Let us introduce you to Abu Nasir al-Farabi, known in the West as Al-Farabius. He was a philosopher and scientist who wrote on topics including ethics, logic, metaphysics, and political philosophy. He was a cosmologist. He studied the mathematical sciences, which included arithmetic, astronomy, geometry, music, optics, and the science of weights and mechanics. He was also a musician who invented instruments and made significant contributions to Arabic music theory. In fact, his pure Arabian tone system for music tuning is still used in Arab music. His work was a significant influence on the foundation of Arabic alchemy. Al-Farabi lived between 872 and 950, give or take a year or two. There isn't really a consensus when it comes to his birth year. There is also not much remaining about the details from his life, aside from his work. Many of the surviving documents that we have date back to periods long after his death, sometimes hundreds of years after his death. And that doesn't always inspire confidence when it comes to accuracy. The oldest known document regarding his heritage was written by medieval historian Ibn Abi Usabia, who mentions in his works that Al-Farabi's father was of Persian descent. But he lived hundreds of years after Al-Farabi. There are many theories and guesses regarding where Al-Farabi was born. Among other historians, including Ibn al-Nadim, who was a bibliographer and biographer of Baghdad during the 10th century, it's considered that Al-Farabi could have been from Khorasan, a region that includes northeastern Iran, southern Turkmenistan, and northern Afghanistan. Medieval Turkish historian Ibn Khalikhan claimed that Al-Farabi was born of Turkic parents in the small village near modern Otrar, Kazakhstan. We are not done, though. The historical account in the 10th century geography book Hadud al-Alam mentions him and another birthplace. Some say that his father was either a Turkestan general or a bodyguard for the Turkish caliph, and that his parents raised him in Sufism, a form of Islamic mysticism. And then there's the Dakota Dictionary. That's a comprehensive 
200-volume Persian Encyclopedic Dictionary. There, it is recorded that Al-Farabi's father was a member of the Persian-speaking Samanid court of Central Asia. But that work wasn't published until a millennia after his life, in 1931. With all of those possibilities said, today, the most common belief is he was probably born in what is now Kazakhstan, though his ethnic origin remains unclear. Scholars do know that he moved from Central Asia to Iraq, where he taught, wrote, and studied in Baghdad. Today, the region of Central Asia, just to be clear, consists of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. What is clear is that it actually doesn't matter where he was born. What mattered is that he was fluent in Arabic. There is a lot of lore that surrounds Al-Farabi that includes stories and details like people saying he was fluent in 70 languages. Another tells a tale of his death by bandits on the road from Damascus to Ascalon after he'd captivated Sultan Saifadulet's court with both his lectures but then declined the sultan's offer to stay for a longer visit. Some even say that he could play instruments in such a fashion that he could make people laugh or cry at his will. Historians believe he finished his early schooling in Farab and Bukhara before traveling to Baghdad to further his studies, right around the year 900. There, he studied under the Nestorian Christian Abu Bashir Mata bin Yunus, a translator and logician, and later under Yuhana bin Hayyan. He mastered several languages, although unlikely that total was 70. He also became well-versed in several fields of study, and by this time he had become an accomplished musician as well. His studies and interests took him to Egypt, Damascus, Haran, and Aleppo, but Baghdad was his center. It's said he visited the court of Saif al-Dola in Aleppo and became a constant companion of him. Some theorize that most of his original works were written there. Saif al-Dola was the founder of the Emirate of Aleppo, which encompassed most of northern Syria and parts of western Jazeera. We are going to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, get ready to talk about Arabic alchemy in the Islamic Golden Age. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about why the Greco-Arabic translation movement is a key player in the development of Arabic alchemy. So it is believed that alchemy was likely born in China as early as the 4th century BCE. And then the next place we really see its practice appear on the timeline is in ancient Egypt. Arabic alchemy developed through the legendary practices and stories from earlier works. And it was formed primarily through translation and synthesis of earlier discoveries and writings developed by ancient scholars. And a lot of that had to do with the House of Wisdom and with Al-Farabi. With the rise of the Islamic Empire and its spread outward over vast areas along trade routes, the early Islamic world, and we're talking here about the 7th century, underwent a period of rapid expansion when the Islamic Empire and the religion of Islam were both in their infancy. It was a period of scientific advancement and economic prosperity and a time of great knowledge sharing. When the Islamic Empire overtook Alexandria, Egypt, they opened the door to the vast knowledge and philosophies of ancient Egypt and Greece and included among that the alchemical knowledge and works of ancient Alexandria. Al-Farabi lived during the Islamic Golden Age, which is considered to have been a period between the 8th and 13th centuries. 
This period is when philosophy, science, culture, technology, education, and the arts were flourishing throughout the Islamic empire. The cultural center during this golden age was the city of Baghdad, and that is where the House of Wisdom was built. Important works of scholarship from across Europe and the Middle East were preserved and housed there, and it was a place for both Muslim and non-Muslim scholars to gather and study. It was also a place where works from around the world were translated into the Arabic language. Many of the achievements during the Golden Age were based on earlier works by the ancient Egyptians, Hebrews, Persians, Greeks, and Romans, but they needed to be translated before they could be studied. The Greco-Arabic translation movement, as it was called, fell between the mid-8th century to the late 10th century. Translating earlier works into Arabic allowed scholars here to understand, debate, and build on those ideas. Many languages, including Arabic, Farsi, Aramaic, Hebrew, Syriac, Greek, Latin, they were all spoken and read at the House of Wisdom. The movement was an extensive and sustained effort to translate significant volumes of secular Greek texts into Arabic, and it was a well-funded endeavor. In the 9th century, the works of Plato and Aristotle were translated into Arabic, and by the 12th century, Greek and Arabic works of science and philosophy were being translated into Latin. Much of Aristotle's work became known to Arabic alchemists and to the West because of these translations. Al-Farabi translated Greek and Arabic works of science and philosophy, offering important commentaries on both Aristotle and Plato. You might be thinking, well, neither Plato nor Aristotle were nor are considered alchemists, right? Well, yes, but they formulated some of the ideas that went on to become part of the fabric of the traditions of alchemy. And Al-Farabi is responsible for showing us that. Arabic alchemists synthesized a variety of materials to form the basis of their tradition. Alchemical Hellenistic Greek texts also had a big impact on the early development of Arabic alchemical practices and literature. The Corpus Hermeticum is a collection of philosophical, religious, and theological texts, and those writings are considered the root of the alchemist philosophy of nature. Which brings us back to Al-Farabi and his work translating and introducing Greek literature to the Islamic world. His translations focused on works of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Though the House of Wisdom held a sizable and growing collection of works, trade routes would also have provided a different method of communication about alchemy, and would have afforded the introduction of not only fresh ideas and theories, but also devices and instruments. We've talked about this division between alchemy and chemistry before. On one side, there's science and chemistry, and on the other side, pseudoscience and alchemy. The practice of alchemy, though, as we know, wasn't always thought of as a pseudoscience. Considered a study of natural philosophy, it was, is, a combination of philosophical and proto-scientific theories. Before the 19th century, those who we would regard as scientists were referred to as natural philosophers. Aristotle devoted much of his work to the natural sciences, contributing to the forward developments of physics, astronomy, chemistry, and zoology. We're just naming a few subjects here. It was Aristotle who established a philosophical basis of physics with what he called natural philosophy. In Aristotelian tradition, the idea of natural philosophy is that it considers topics such as the definition of matter, nature, motion, infinity, time, life, and the soul. 
Aristotle regarded the field to be a theoretical science, but work in natural philosophy led to the establishment of separate scientific departments of biology, chemistry, physics, and even psychology. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and when we return, we'll get into how and why Al-Farabi made ancient Greek philosophy relevant to his time and place. Welcome back to Criminalia. If you drink distilled spirits such as vodka or whiskey, you should give a nod to the Arabic alchemists. Here's why. In the medieval Islamic world, the study of alchemy was known in Arabic as alchemia. Early literature written in Arabic quoted the Corpus Hermeticum, as well as Aristotle and other Greek philosophers. Writings of the Islamic world went on to directly influence the practice of medieval alchemy, as well as what would eventually become modern chemistry. Al-Farabi studied the ancient classical philosophies and explored questions that arose when Islamic religion and Greek philosophy, which was considered obsolete at the time, converged. He's considered to be instrumental in introducing the works of Plato and Aristotle to the Muslim world, translating them but also providing additional text and commentary. He was regarded as the greatest philosophical authority after Aristotle and was referred to as Malam Isani, which means the second teacher. That follows in the tradition of Aristotle, who was known as the first teacher. He is widely regarded as the father of philosophy in the Islamic world. Al-Farabi talked about how he viewed the ancient works he relied so heavily upon, and we have this quote here from him. The Greeks who possessed this science used to call it unqualified wisdom and the highest wisdom. They called the acquisition of it science and that scientific state of mind philosophy, by which they met the quest and the love of the highest wisdom. They called the one who acquires it philosopher, meaning the one who loves and is in quest for the highest wisdom. They held that it potentially subsumes all of the virtues. Many followed or were intrigued or inspired by his writings. Avicenna, Averroes, and Maimonides all considered many of Al-Farabi's ideas in their own work, and they each left written testimony of their respect and admiration for him. That's important because they were important. Ibn Sina, known as Avicenna in the West, was a prominent philosopher and physician in the Islamic world. His writings and work combined the disparate practices of philosophical and scientific thinking in Greek late antiquity and early Islam into a scientific system that encompassed and explained all reality, including the tenets of revealed religion and its theological and mystical elaborations. Ibn Rushd, or Averroes in the West, was a Muslim Andalusian polymath, physician, and jurist. Much of his philosophical writing includes commentaries on Aristotle, for which he became known in the West as the commentator and father of rationalism. Continuing on this, medieval Jewish scholastic philosopher Moses ben Maimon, known as Maimonides, is a man who prominently appears in the recorded history of Islamic and Arab sciences. And his works? Well, they're all influenced by the ideas of both Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina. There was a quote that we found during our discovery process that said, Al-Farabi learned from the Greeks, but he wrote for Muslims. And it's kind of true. Though he didn't deliberately distort his Greek sources, he did reformulate or 
you know, at least slightly rejigger the ancient ideas in order to give them better appeal and familiarity to his Arabic readers. He made them readable and also relevant to his time and his place, and he added context that made these concepts relatable. Al-Farabi was a prolific writer and on all sorts of topics, concentrating on areas of philosophy and logic and music. Some of his works have been lost over the years, and some haven't been translated for those who aren't fluent in Arabic. But included in his works are The Philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, which consists of both summaries and interpretations of the works of both of those men. The Harmonization of the Opinions of the Two Divine Sages also explores the ideas of these two ancient Greek philosophers. The Selected Aphorisms opens with a brief introduction to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and then goes on to adopt and adapt material from Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. The Virtuous City might be the book that Al-Farabi is best known for. He begins with accounts of the cosmos and then concludes with discussions of politics. And his great book of music is considered one of the most important medieval musical texts in Islamic tradition. And it also includes philosophical exploration of ideas such as the relationship between language and music. His work, Meanings of the Intellect, explored music therapy with a discussion of the therapeutic effects of music on a person's soul. And other major titles from Al-Farabi's corpus include On the Introduction of Knowledge, on the principles of the views of the inhabitants of the excellent state, that is also titled The Ideal City, The Book of Letters, and The Book of Enumeration of the Sciences. But what about the doing? Al-Razi, a Persian physician, philosopher, and alchemist who was contemporary to Al-Farabi, claimed that, quote, the study of philosophy could not be considered complete, and a learned man could not be called a philosopher until he had succeeded in producing the alchemical transmutation. So, Al-Farabi was considered a natural philosopher, an alchemist, yet we don't really know anything regarding any hands-on work he may have done attempting to discover something like, say, the Philosopher's Stone, which was highly sought by alchemists because it was believed to possess the properties to transform one metal into another. Base metal into gold is the example we always use. He probably, at the very least, dabbled in more than doctrine, but it's really just our assumption. There are noteworthy Arabic alchemists influenced by his works and the innovations that grew out of it. According to the bibliographer and biographer we mentioned earlier, Ibn al-Nadim, the first Arabic alchemist was a man named Khalid ibn Yazid, who was an Umayyad prince and assumed alchemist who lived in the 7th century. And though this second one is not the first, it is Jabir ibn Hayyan, a legendary scholar who died in the early 9th century, who is considered the first great Arabic alchemist, the father of alchemy, and one of the founders or pioneers of pharmacology and modern chemistry. Now that we've talked about how it began, let's talk about the advancements in chemical technology that came out of Arabic alchemical practice. If you drink tequila rum, gin, vodka, whiskey, bourbon, please thank the Arabic alchemists. They discovered distillation and the roots of modern distillation technology. During the Islamic Golden Age, distillation led to industries producing things like perfume, oils, petroleum. It allowed for distilled spirits rather than only fermented beverages. 
Arabic alchemists are known to have discovered nitric and sulfuric acids. Alkalis, too, were in great demand for making products such as glass and bars of soap. They were the first, too, to produce a recipe for making hard soaps. Arabic alchemists are also credited with discovering a mixture of nitric acid and hydrochloric acid, which in Latin would be called aqua regia, which is important to alchemy because it could dissolve gold, perhaps nothing more valuable to an alchemist. Arabic alchemists pioneered the basic chemical operations of amalgamation, crystallization, distillation, evaporation, filtration, liquefaction, purification, oxidation, and sublimation. Their work with metals and salts advanced foundry techniques, as well as glazing processes for tiles and other ceramics. Writings include descriptions for processes including the refinement of metals and the preparation of steel, as well as how to make waterproof cloth and hair dye. There were many things about Al-Farabi and Arabic alchemy that we haven't talked about, but that's only because this is an enormous topic to dive into. People devote their lives to studying this history and this man. We do know that during his lifetime and far beyond, Al-Farabi was an enormous source of aspiration and inspiration for scholars. One of my favorite discoveries about him when we were doing our research on who he was was that he defined a concept of happiness. As in the ancient Greek tradition he was so closely studying, the highest rank of happiness was a person whose soul was, quote, united, as it were, with the active intellect. Like his birth story, we couldn't nail down more than the year of his death, 950. But how he died is a question. In one version of the story, in the year 942 and due to political unrest, Al-Farabi took up residence at the court of Prince Saif al-Dola, the ruler of northern Syria, who was founder and prominent prince of the Arab Hamdanid dynasty of Aleppo. This, the story goes, was his home until his death eight years later. But some historians believe that he died in Damascus while traveling with Saif al-Dola's court. Others have written that he was killed by robbers while he was searching for the Philosopher's Stone. Or he died a bachelor in Damascus in 950. (laughs) It's a choose-your-own-adventure death story. (laughs) And birth story. (laughs) Mysteries abound. Exactly. So speaking of mystery, it is a mystery to me of what you are serving us today. What's up with your drink, Holly? Ooh, I had to think about this one for a long time <laughs> because sometimes they come to me immediately while I'm first looking over the info. And sometimes I got a noodle on it for a minute. This was a noodler, but it's a very simple drink. And it's a case where I decided to go with a base drink that's super easy and then encourage anyone to do their own little mm-hmm. cocktail alchemy and play with it a little bit. Another choose your own adventure. Yes, we always love those. I love them. My favorite. <laughs> In honor of the time in which we talk today, it's called the Golden Age, because it's golden. You were going to start with your trusty cocktail shaker and put into it two ounces of white rum, one ounce of honey syrup. Remember, that's not straight honey. It's half honey, half water, and mix them together. And then just a splash, a tiny splash of lemon juice. You don't need a ton here because we're going to put more lemon is coming. You just want that little bit of citrus juice in your shaker because it helps the honey syrup and the rum incorporate it. It helps blend everything together. So you'll give that a good shake with some ice and then 
pour it over fresh ice, and then you'll top it with two to four ounces of lemonade, depending on how strong you want your drink. This on its own is delicious. Like the honey just gives it this really nice, beautiful flavor. And the rum kind of vanishes. You can't really taste it. So it can be dangerous in that regard. Please drink (laughs) responsibly. But like I said, this is like a base cocktail because after this, you can add an ounce of almost any syrup or liqueur that you desire, or maybe less than an ounce, depending on how much you want to change it up. And it can completely change it in a way that customizes it to whatever occasion you desire. Obviously, I'm going to say throw a little rose syrup in here and the <laughs> magical happens. But the other thing that's great is that you could also put a little bit of cinnamon syrup in it and you get a completely different drink. Oh, I like that. If you want to play with liqueurs, you could even, I did one version that was like a really amped up, I wanted to go whole hog on the lemon. And oh, so I yeah. put a little limoncello in it oh, like and that those. was really nice. It made it a little thicker and a little heavier flavored, but it was still really quite springy and bright. That's an adventure I need to try. That one. Yeah, it's a yeah. super fun adventure to do. You can really play with anything here. A little Grand Marnier in it, if you want to make it more like an old school French lemonade, mm. is great. There are a million, million options, literally. I'm trying to think of other liqueurs. I would, ooh, a ginger liqueur in this would be perfect. So you have many ways to play with it. The easy peasy non-alcoholic version is really everything but the rum. Since the rum doesn't really add a whole lot of taste shift to it, you can literally just start with a, I would say, a fairly tart lemonade. Your sweetness level is whatever you desire. But I don't like it super tart, but you don't want it cloyingly sweet either because you do want to add that honey And then from there, you can just have a syrup party, right? (laughs) A raspberry syrup is really good in this also. You can even try. I have seen, I saw someone mention that they like to mix cocktails with lemonade and mint syrup, which I didn't try, but sounds interesting. The sky's the limit. Throw a little absinthe in, see what happens if you want to do an alcoholic version. All of the options are available to you, my cocktail alchemists. I hope that you enjoy playing with this nice base. But if you just want to make a super easy, basic cocktail, the golden age with just the rum, the honey syrup, and the lemonade is amazing. And you can toss it in your rocks glass and just sip it on a summer day. Can't get it wrong. There's no cocktail jail. I haven't said that in a long time, but I still believe in it. No one's going to put you there. Not that we know of. (laughs) (laughs) Not that we know of. Not talking about like a drunken disorderly situation. <laughs> just a, you won't go to jail for messing up a cocktail recipe. That's all I'm saying. Again, drink responsibly. <laughs> and thank you for spending this time with us this week while we giggle about getting arrested? Question mark. Is that what it was? We will be right back here again next week with more libations and more stories of witchcraft and alchemy. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.